After five years without a democratically elected regional council, Cantabrians have been offered a new model by the government, involving a mix of elected councillors and appointed commissioners. This week's Radio New Zealand Insight programme asks if the halfway house proposed by the government is what Cantabrians want and whether continued government intervention in the region can be justified. Years might have passed, but the sacking of the Ekan councillors and the reasons behind the move still raise questions. Was there an urgent need for action, or is democracy still too precious to be sidelined? There's a reason that democracies survive, and they survive because actually there is a wisdom in crowd thinking, where the richer the debate, the more we can be confident that the outcomes will really last for generations. Now, of course, democracies are frustrating, and of course you'd just like to be able to rush a decision through, and of course we sometimes don't get terrific councillors, but actually appointing your mates is never a way to run a country. But what will happen next? The head of the politics department at Canterbury University, Bronwyn Hayward, says any partial return of democracy to Canterbury would amount to gerrymandering by the government to ensure farming interests continue to have the loudest voice around the council table. But the Environment Minister, Nick Smith, who also made the initial decision to sack the council, says a return to fully elected councillors would result in an unbalanced result with too much input from urban voters. He says that creates a risk of councillors being elected that don't share the same aims as the commissioners he put in place to regulate water use in Canterbury. What made the previous council very difficult was you had a rural community that had huge economic issues at stake with respect to fresh water and an urban community that was not that economically affected but very, very concerned about the environmental issues. A highly polarised council and polarised governance bodies don't work well. I'm Conan Young and this insight investigates what effect the loss of regional democracy has had on Canterbury and what the government's commissioners have been up to for the past five years. Up to a thousand protesters have packed into Cathedral Square demanding Our a Our Christchurch reporter Jessica Maddock is at the protest and she joins us now. Jessica, who's there? Mary, there's at least 300 very loud, very angry people here. Uh, they include the thousands protested against the removal of the councillors in 2010, amidst claims they were dysfunctional and had failed to introduce a water plan for the region, allowing it to make the most of its alpine water and reap the economic rewards of large-scale irrigation. While regional council politics could be said to be low down the list of priorities for most New Zealanders, in Canterbury it matters. The main reason is water. Hamish Rennie is a lecturer in planning and environmental management at Lincoln University, who in 2007 came back to the piece of land his family first began farming on the banks of the Selwyn River in 1863. After a long period living away from the region, he was shocked to see no swimming signs along the river he had grown up next to. That used to be a major boating area. There was a lot of people swimming and boating there, and now it's far reduced. There, there are some people still using it for that purpose, but it used to be much more so, and it used to be a really, really wonderful sort of playground, and it's lost that. It's, it is really sad. The same year Hamish Rennie returned to find the Canterbury of his childhood much changed, Cantabrians voted in four regional councillors who stood on a platform of protecting waterways from polluting dairy farmers. It was these councillors the government blamed for dividing ECAN and holding up large-scale irrigation schemes, one of its justifications for dumping the entire council in 2010. 
Hamish Rennie says the decision was totally unjustified. The national government is a, treats New Zealand as New Zealand Incorporated, and I'm, I'm quite happy with them doing that. But then their approach to dealing with that is to think in terms of a business model whereby if you have a branch office which is not doing exactly what you want it to do, you get rid of the managers and appoint new managers that will do what you want it to do. And that's the sense I have about what happened in Canterbury. Nick Smith insists there was no pressure from irrigators to dump the council and that his decision was driven as much by a wish to see limits put on polluting dairy farmers as a desire to see the rapid expansion of irrigation schemes on the plains. He says the elected councillors simply weren't up to the job. They were the worst prepared for the change in stepping up New Zealand's water management. Absolutely hopeless in terms of processing resource consents, the worst of 86 councils in New Zealand. We had the independent review of ECAN describing the governance of the body as dysfunctional. And as well as that, we had a letter from all 10 mayors in Canterbury pleading for the government to intervene. Hamish Rennie accuses Nick Smith of talking up a disaster at the council that did not exist. I've read all those letters from the mayors and they are, in some cases, pretty puerile. The concern is, is down to an individual staff member who had problems with other people. And the actual investigation that was carried out by the review virtually dismissed the vast majority of them. So I think the original basis for removing the, the elected councils is pretty difficult to justify under any circumstances. You had particular disagreements on councils, you have disagreements on all councils. One of the sacked councillors was Eugenie Sage, who was one of the four elected in 2007 on a water conservation platform. Now a Green MP, she says at the time the council was dealing with 3,700 new consent applications every year, more than all the other regional councils combined. By 2009-10, there had been a major improvement and 80% of new consent applications were being processed and decided on in accordance with statutory timeframes. ECAN had a natural resources regional plan. It was notified in 2004. It was going through the hearing process. It was adopted by commissioners a couple of months after they were appointed. So what were the government's motivations for sacking the councillors? Was it a move on behalf of irrigators or a necessary step to get some progress on a water plan for Canterbury, one that placed important limits on the amount of nitrates that were allowed into the region's waterways? The Commissioner and ECAN Deputy Chair David Cagle revealed what he believed the government's motivations were during an interview he gave to a university master's student last year. In it, he agreed that in the main, what the government was really interested in was not so much the management of water as the promotion of irrigation. I asked him if he stood by those comments. Oh, well, I, I, I said them. Um, let's, let's break this down a little bit. Um, it has often been said to us, so we've often been accused, as it were, by opponents of our appointment of essentially being sent in simply to carry out what ministers expected of us. So the question of what motivation ministers might have had becomes part of the background, if you like. And ministers have made it clear from time to time that they see irrigation as an important opportunity, not just in Canterbury, but nationally. So do I, if it comes to that. But David Cagle says while the government's motivations may be primarily to do with promoting irrigation, he and the other commissioners have a wider brief. I haven't spent every waking moment 
asking myself, and what do ministers think I should be doing now? We weren't just appointed to do a job, we were appointed into a statutory role. And as a matter of law, I've had to look at the requirements of the Resource Management Act and the requirements of the Local Government Act, as well as the objectives of the water management strategy. I've not seen my job being particularly about irrigation or about irrigation and never mind anything else. And while we've reported regularly to ministers, actually they're far too busy to be on the phone saying, and now I want you to do X and Y. But what about the future mixed model of seven elected councillors and six appointed commissioners? Last year, David Cagle told the master's student the council would be arranged in such a way that the old divisions of the past between those for and against irrigation would be avoided. Mr Cagle was guarded in his comments about the current model up for consultation. If the government decides to continue with a partly appointed council, most of the elected councillors are going to represent urban constituencies because that's where most of the people live. Most of the work that has to be done, however, relates to rural catchments, rural impacts, the rural social and economic environment. The power of appointment to me is all about somehow achieving that necessary balance. I mean, how do you do that though? Oh, that's for the government. The commissioners who took the place of the elected councillors are led by a career public servant, Margaret Baisley, who has been called in by the government as a problem solver in a range of sectors. The commissioners include a retired environment court judge, a former cabinet minister and others with expertise in business, irrigation and dairy farming. The Environment Canterbury Temporary Commissioners and Improved Water Management Act gives them sweeping powers to bring in planning rules that, unlike the rest of the country, cannot be appealed to the Environment Court. Academic Bronwyn Hayward says the elected councillors needed to bring people with them and ensure their ideas were palatable to a broad range of people or else face the prospect of being turfed out at the next election. She says this isn't a consideration for the appointed commissioners. The recipe that we've had is actually a recipe for corruption. And I don't say that lightly because I think the commissioners that we've appointed are exceptional and they're very talented. But it's, we have got to be so careful because having a system without democratic scrutiny sets you up for failure. And, and that's what we must avoid. We've got a proud history of transparency and a lack of corruption. We've got to maintain and ensure that. Bronwyn Hayward doubts some of the policies introduced by the commissioners would have seen the light of day under an elected council. So the decisions over, for instance, open fires has been very contentious in a community that's facing ongoing inequality. How we heat our homes has been a really big issue. And really we needed an ECAN that was also able to stand up and front up to an election to get the mandate really to be um, confident that the route that they're choosing in terms of banning wood burners was actually one that's supported by the whole community. Hamish Rennie says the government appointed commissioners have a lot of power and don't appear to be accountable to anyone. One thing that's always bugged me about this whole thing is I'm not sure where the accountability should lie anymore. They're effectively reporting to ministers of the Crown in terms of reference. So shouldn't they be actually reported to a select committee as well, to the normal select committee process for a, essentially a central government department? It worries me that there is not that central government scrutiny that you would get of their performance that you would get if they were actually a government department.
The main job of the commissioners is to bring in a Canterbury water management strategy to decide how the region's water resources should be used and to place limits on the amount of nitrogen dairy farmers are allowed to send into waterways. To draw up the strategy, the commissioners picked up where their elected counterparts left off by appointing committees across ten water catchments. The Hiranui catchment was the first to get its plan through and has been followed this year by a plan for the Selwyn Waihora catchment known as Variation 1. It covers the area between the Waimakariri and Rakaia rivers and includes one of the most polluted lakes in the country, Te Waihora Lake Ellesmere. Fish and Games environmental advisor Scott Pearson took me to see one of the drainage canals that takes runoff from neighbouring dairy farm paddocks that is then pumped straight into the lake. Well, Scott, I might get you to just um, come down here with us and just sort of um, explain for us. I, we won't get too close to this because uh, <laughs> I definitely don't want to fall in here. Um, so it's um, there's not a lot going on in here, I take it. Yeah, what this this particular spot here, you can just tell by the colour of the water that a the clarity's poor, and we know from a number of the monitoring sites around the lake that. The nitrate levels are extremely high. Scott Pearson says the lake will deteriorate further once the Central Plains Irrigation Scheme goes online in September. Once that scheme is, is sort of fully running at 60,000 hectares, you know, the, the additional cows might be somewhere between 60 and 80,000. So if you do the maths on that, that's the equivalent of an eight or 900,000 human city in the catchment that doesn't have a big sewage treatment plant to deal with the, the aftermath of that. And so um, I guess that sort of tells me what might be going on with this um, drainage canal here. And so if we look down here, there's, um, I mean, you can even just smell it, can't you? There's sort of just this general stench that's coming off here. And what, all of this just actually makes its way into the lake? Yeah, effectively. We have had trouble with a number of our rivers getting cyanobacteria from, from excessive nitrogen and that's a, a neurotoxin and so yeah, we have had instances of dogs uh, dying out here. Scott Pearson says the 14% reduction in overall nitrogen runoff Variation 1 aims to achieve over the next 23 years will still leave the catchment with more nitrogen runoff than it has now. At the moment we sort of refer back to the uh, Jen Wright's, uh, the Commissioner for the Environment's report, which basically said even if all farms in Canterbury were on best management practice, we'd still have a real issue. So the only way I think going forward is to set some good limits and to stick to those limits. In other words, we've got to cap some of these polluted catchments and, and wait till we've got headroom before we put more farming in. And at the moment it's the other way around. They want to put more farming on and promise to, to make the improvements. So it's a bit like offering someone a piece of cake and then them saying that they'll, they'll eat it and work it off at the gym in the afternoon. It's the wrong way around. Driving anywhere on the Canterbury Plains now, you're really struck by how radically the landscape has been changed by the conversion from largely sheep and beef farming to intensive dairy farming. The view across the plains to the mountains has improved, but that's thanks largely to the removal of many of the shelter belts. These were used to protect stock from the region's infamous northwest winds, but have been chopped down to make way for the large pivot irrigators that stretch hundreds of metres across most farms now. The water they carry has turned usually dry paddocks a lush green. Fish and Games North Canterbury manager Rod Cullinane says now that the transformation of the plains is almost complete, dairy farmers are extending their reach into the iconic landscape of the high country.
Well, the Upper Rakaia region is a, a case in point where there's been rapid intensification of farming over the last four or five years in particular, uh, and what was uh, wet, valuable wetlands um, and spawning grounds for salmon have now been turned into bowling green flat green uh, pastures for uh, cattle and, uh, and dairy support. And that's of major concern to us, and it's a, it's a real eye-opener to the extent that we took the New Zealand councillors for fishing game up there recently on a bus trip so that they could see firsthand just what's going on, and uh, they were absolutely stunned. Rod Cullinane doubts ECAN's willingness to come down hard on dairy farmers who don't comply with the rules. All right, we're here in uh, Cathedral Square. Uh, I'm here to meet uh, Sam Munn. Sam, how you doing? Yeah, look, I'm looking at this um, plinth right here that we built. I don't know how many years ago would that be now, this thing? The artist and anti-irrigation activist Sam Mann was amongst the 3,000 people who gathered in Cathedral Square in 2010 to protest against the sacking of the councillors. As part of the rally, people helped to build a two-metre-high ken out of stones from the Waimakariri River that each of them signed. Most of the buildings around the square, including the cathedral, either fell over in the earthquakes or had to be demolished. On the day I caught up with Sam Mann, demolition work was still being carried out. But amidst the desolation, the cairn continues to stand tall in a prominent position right in front of the cathedral. The fight against large-scale irrigation is very much a personal one for Sam Mann. He tells the story of his friend Cathy Centenni, who approached her local ECAN zone committee with concerns about the impact the widespread dispersal of water on the Canterbury Plains would have in spreading arsenic left over from thousands of old sheep dipping sites. Well, a short time after that, Cathy got diagnosed with breast cancer and it killed her eight months ago. Um, but she had her water tested by um, a local uh, water testing outfit in, in Geraldine. And they found the, the profile of a sheep dip in her water, so that the arsenic levels were 100 times over the World Health Organization levels. Sam Mann plans to place a bronze bust of his friend on top of the Ken in Cathedral Square in her memory. And like many in Canterbury who are passionately concerned about the future of water quality in the region, he wants ECAN commissioners to pay heed to the effects of intensive farming. He points to what's happened overseas as a result of intensive dairying. There's a lake I love in Switzerland called Lake Harleville. It's a beautiful lake. I ran it one day and on the way around I noticed there were four pumping stations. The pumping stations were there apparently to pump air into the lake, which is 50 metres deep, to keep it alive for exactly the same reasons that our lakes and our rivers here are dying from nutrient runoff. The Swiss have realised what they're doing has been a mistake over the last 50 years or so. That lake now is buggered. If they don't pump air into it, it gets an algae bloom across the entire surface of the lake with the blood of Burgundy. The lake is ruined. They have to artificially keep that thing alive. Now these people know from past experience the dangers of what we're doing. We're not learning from what's happened overseas. Welcome everybody to today's meeting and a special Ekan Selwyn Waihora Zone Committee has been tasked with making sure Te Waihora Lake Ellesmere doesn't go the same way as some lakes overseas. Its Selwyn District Council representative, Councillor Pat McEverty, says the passing of Variation 1 is an important step, but fixing the lake will take generations. I don't think it's about fixing the lake. I think it's about recognising our environmental impact and taking some measures to control that. And, you know, 
KY Hora will be what it is. I don't even know what a fixed lake would look like, and I don't think anybody could give us a vision of that. And to, to make promises is just going to create expectation, and I don't think the Runanga representative sitting around our table expect to have a fixed lake, they, but they do expect us to take control of our environmental impact. Mr McEvity says Variation 1 comes with stringent controls, requiring reduced amounts of nitrogen runoff within the next seven years. He says the new irrigation coming online from Central Plains Water in September is central to the plan. So therefore we managed to work out a plan which actually embraced the intensification of Central Plains Water. So we brought alpine water into the zone, we could retire some groundwater takes, we could use that water to actually make our streams flow better and also allow some headspace for the intensification. The membership of the zone committees is decided by the commissioners and the district and city councils. In Selwyn Waihora, four of the committee's seven community members are either dairy farmers or derive their incomes from the practice. The commissioner that sits on the committee, Tom Lambie, is a dairy farmer, and Pat McEvity grows and sells feed to dairy farmers. Mr McEvity says there have been more environmentalists on the committee in the past, and the current membership simply reflects where they are at in the process. We're in a different phase now, and that's around implementation, and you do need a heavy farmer input to that because I think that um, farmers are as much environmentalists as anybody. He admits that consulting with those living in urban areas has been a challenge but that it's not for a lack of trying. We held meetings but you know people don't attend meetings as easily as you'd like and we've um, tried for publicity. Actually getting our, the stakeholders who are actually in the zone to buy in was pretty simple because they knew what the rules were coming but the wider um, community of Christchurch, we're well aware of what their involvement in our community is, our zone, because they recreate here, they use the lake, they use our rivers, they use the, the hills, the mountains, and we're very aware of that. But now they're starting to buy in a little bit, and perhaps your article will help in that way. The committee member and dairy farmer, John Sunkel, insists the community has been listened to in the process of formulating Variation 1. There is this debate in the, in the media and others where we have been defined as a bunch of dairy farmers out there to, to steal water or, or do whatever. And I, I come back to the initial point of the makeup of, of our committee and the slowness of the process. And it was because we had such a strong environmental and cultural grouping at the table. If people want to say we weren't elected and only appointed and it's not democratic, I'm, I just I dare any of them to come into the room and, and sit around that table with all those competing interests. And I, I don't think in an elected model you would have had anything different. The Federated Farmers President and South Canterbury farmer, William Ralston, rejects the idea there's a lack of democracy in the region. We have to remember that the commissioners have actually been appointed by a democratically elected government. So democracy is still alive and well, even um, in the ECAN commissioners. What I think we need to try and avoid is uh, that we end up with politics getting in the way of what really needs to be a logical and, and scientific approach to managing these water issues, which are very complex. So we don't want short-term politics to, to get in the way there. Asked if it was fair to have a council with a greater weighting towards rural or development interests, William Ralston said that was as it should be. You can cut this uh, cake quite a number of ways, and uh, certainly from a rural perspective. I mean, farmers uh, interact with Environment Canterbury to a much greater extent than, in fact, uh, urban counterparts do. 
I mean, they are custodians of the land and big users of water, and part of what ECAN has to do is to you know, regulate the management of land and, and water. The Commissioner and Deputy ECAN Chairperson David Cagle rejects accusations they are at risk of losing touch with the community. I feel as, as busy, but also as open, as connected as, as if I was a politician. I'm not up for re-election, so I don't have to worry about the impact of any decisions I'm taking on my election prospects. But to be honest, that wasn't the sort of thing that used to keep me awake at night when I was an elected politician. My view has always been the most important thing an elected person can do is firstly make the decisions that they believe are right, necessary, appropriate, and then be prepared to explain or defend them, be open as to the basis on which you've acted. I think both of those two tests apply to our behaviour as commissioners. David Cagle says the scrapping of appeals to the Environment Court has allowed planning changes to be introduced two years ahead of schedule. He says the extra check the court provided hasn't been completely lost due to the retention of independent commissioners who hear submissions and make the final decision on whether a plan should be implemented. David Cagle says he hasn't decided whether he'll offer his services to the new council that will take charge from the end of next year. But the Minister, Nick Smith, says the job the Commissioners were put there to do is only half completed. Our number one concern is around the Canterbury Water Management Strategy. There's a huge amount of work that's taking place within the zone committees. That work comes through a crunch period through from 2016 to 19, and we think that by having a mixed model we can keep that continuity uh, but gradually shift it back to a democratic model so that by 2019 we've got a fully elected council and at the same time we've got a robust water plan for the region. Canterbury University's Bronwyn Hayward says the mixed model should have been introduced three years ago and she sounds a warning about the length of time Canterbury has been left without a fully elected council. What the government's done now by retaining the same set of councillors for such a long period of time is to actually hollow out the leadership in Canterbury. And that's something that I also am deeply disturbed about because it means that we haven't got a skills base of people who've been sitting around the board. So when the government talks about a crisis now, it's a crisis entirely of their own making. A final decision on the makeup of the new council is expected shortly, and a bill is expected to go before Parliament before the end of the year, paving the way for elections next year. I'm Conan Young, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this programme, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz. Our Twitter handle is rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Philippa Tolley with technical production by Dan Bebin.